Let's pray. Father, you are holy. You are worthy to be praised. You are so kind and loving to us. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you sent your son to this earth, Lord, to live a perfect, holy life. He came purposefully to go to the cross for us to take on your righteous wrath for us paying the penalty for sin the penalty that we deserve oh, thank you Father for that thank you for your grace to us your grace that saves us and your grace that now enables us to live a gospel-centered, transformed life. Thank you for your grace that will someday uh, take us home to be with you in glory. We love you and we praise you. So this morning, Father, as we open up your word in Titus, I pray, Lord, that we would be women who are humble and teachable, seeking you in your word. I pray, Lord, for help. I need your Spirit's help to speak this morning to be clear. I pray for these women, Lord, that they wouldn't be distracted, that they would be um, able to focus and um, that we would um, just have a sweet time in your word and it would be um, a sweet time of worship to you. We lift the kids up to you, Father, and pray that you would soften their hearts to know you. Thank you for all the precious servants that serve you faithfully, caring for the children. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We pray, Lord, that you, you would be honored and glorified this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Come on in. Look who's back. Chris. <laughs> I'm so happy to have her back. I'm so happy to have you here. So we've missed you. We've just missed you. Okay, so we are going to do what we normally do every morning. Uh, flip your no notebooks over, and we're going to go over the disciplines. And Wellspring's purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church, that's us, to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God, so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And it's so encouraging 
um, to see God answering prayers for this purpose to be bo- to be fulfilled here in your lives, to see the fruit of that in in your lives. Many of you are being much more purposeful about not only reading God's word, but actually being intentional to shepherd your hearts toward Jesus Christ in that time, toward the gospel in that time, and and even throughout your days. God in his grace is so good to help us in that. And if you're doing this, growing in this, then you're beginning to learn and see the delight of being near our Savior, right? Such a delight. And even setting aside any false sense of acceptability before God based on our own performance to savor salvation through God's grace alone. And now that alone, it, it, it would be motivation to persevere in this, right? But isn't it so amazing that God would actually strengthen households? He would strengthen families and his church through that. We come to him through his word, and he pours into us, and he transforms us, and then he uses us to display more of Christ in our homes and in our church. And all of the disciplines are about breaking down that purpose and helping us to remember that the way this happens is by being careful. Careful first with our own hearts. That's discipline one. Discipline one says that she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And when we read that, probably for most of us, the first thing we think about is our daily reading plan, right? And we should, okay? That is an essential part of discipline one. But what about um, other times? You know, Are you aware of what your heart is doing the rest of the day? You could ask, are you listening to yourself or are you talking to yourself? There's a difference. There's a huge difference. And as you respond to life's circumstances that happen throughout the day, are you guarding your mind for action throughout your day and remembering by remembering the gospel so that what overflows is Christ's likeness? Are you growing in that? Do you see fruit in that? Discipline, too, says she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And we have often talked about discipline, too, in terms of caring for others' hearts. And that is certainly part of discipline, too. And we've repeated that we can't leapfrog over our hearts and caring for our homes. But are we ever tempted to think, okay, so I've read the word, check, Now I'm ready. I'm ready to go tackle the day. I'm ready to go speak into my family's life. Those members of my family that I live with or roommates or whoever. So this is just kind of an opportunity to um, be careful. Be careful with that to see how easily, you know, that can even leave room for pride in our hearts. Let's remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Verses 3 through 5, he says, Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? And then he says, You hypocrite. 
first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Discipline two is about life in our homes, about household relationships and family relationships, those that we're closest to. And our hearts are exposed most in those relationships, right? Those people that we live closest to, our logs, they're exposed there. But when we really understand discipline one and we admit our own sin first and we confess our sin and we seek forgiveness for it, well, then we're in a place. Then we're in a place of humility, dealing with our own hearts first. And then we're in a position to go to the people we live with or are close, that we're closest to by God's grace. And when we get this, and we're really dealing first with our own hearts on an ongoing basis, then we're, just, we're in this position to go to those we live with by dealing with our own sin first. We'll have a heart that really wants to help and wants to offer hope of the gospel. And we have a heart that's willing to hear others when there is sin that they need to help us see. That's, um, setting, that's a setting for the gospel aroma in our homes. And then discipline three includes these very same principles. It's about getting involved in one another's lives. And we're going to see um, that even today when we look at Titus 2, where we help one another see the very same things we know to be true about ourselves, that first and most, they need to shepherd their own hearts toward God's word, dealing with their logs, so that they can be encouraged by the gospel and equipped to go to their homes with hearts that are cleansed and ready to extend grace. So there are your disciplines this morning, and I have a question for you. So have you ever found um, that it's a lot more motivating to clean your house when you're having people over or having a party? Right? You get with it, right? Um, it's just not something that you need to do? Or isn't it a lot more motivating to get the laundry done when you know you're packing for a vacation somewhere that you're excited about, uh, something you're excited about doing? Well, we all tend to be a little more motivated, a little more energized when we see the importance of what we need to do, right? And today we're studying a pretty familiar passage to most of us, Titus 2, 3 through 5, and you can turn to Titus now. Um, Paul is writing to Titus after he left him in Crete. That's in chapter 1. And he tells Titus that he needs to set in order what remains, and he needs to um, appoint elders in every city there. Why? Well, because there were threats. There were false teachers. There were rebellious men in the church. And as a result... Households, whole families were being upset. That's in verse 11 because they were teaching things they should not teach. And this false teaching was affecting households and affecting the church. The word of God's being dishonored and therefore the church is crippled in its ability to display the gospel and bring the lost to faith. But in Titus 1, Paul says, Titus 1.1, he says that he's an apostle of the truth that leads to godliness, and he understands that the solution lies in training God's people in the truth and helping the church understand how that gospel truth will transform them into godly people and a godly church who will proclaim with him 
the hope of eternal life. So he instructs Titus, everyone needs to understand, everyone needs to understand their role in protecting the reputation of the church and the honor of God's word so that the culture, the very ones who are threatening households and threatening the church can be won and brought to soundness of faith. And ladies, we have the truth too. The gospel that both saves and sanctifies. It's what Paul wrote in Titus 2, 11 through 14. You can go there. Starting in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And the context here is all kinds of men just mentioned above that we'll, we'll get into, but old and young men, older and younger women, even slaves. And verse 12 says, um, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Did you see all that God's grace has done in that? It instructs to deny ungodliness. It brings salvation And it instructs to deny ungodliness and to live in a godly way, looking for Christ's return. You see that in there? And then he continues in verse 14, describing Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's why Christ gave himself. As we live gospel-transformed lives, households are built up, the church is strengthened and equipped to fulfill its witness, in this very dark world. So Paul starts in chapter 1 with telling Titus to appoint elders. And these men, they must be godly. They must be able to refute and instruct. They have a role in uh, protecting and building up the body and rescuing the lost. And then he goes on and he gives specific instructions for everyone. The display of the gospel requires a coordinated effort. A coordinated effort. No one is excluded. So as we move into our passage, don't forget Paul's purpose. He's concerned with the church guarding the reputation of the gospel. So before we read or before we read our pass or we read our passage in Titus 2, 3 through 5 this morning, it's important to keep in mind that as part of his body, none of us are excluded. None of us. It wouldn't make sense to read these verses in Titus 2, 3 through 5 and exclude ourselves if every one of these descriptions doesn't fit. You know, as we read about the role of an older woman, if we think, well, I'm not really an older woman yet, well, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned with being reverent because none of us are excluded from needing to live in a way that protects God's word from being dishonored, right? So... As women in the church, we all, we all need to understand and apply these verses. So as we come to Titus 2, 3 through 5, we can come asking some questions. I'm just going to give you some questions to be thinking about as we go through. How do I, how do I participate in protecting and strengthening the church? How do I participate in my household and family relationships? How do I participate in honoring God's word? Let's read the passage. Titus 2, starting in verse 3. Older women, 
Likewise, they're to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So first we're going to look at the big picture, and then we're going to dig into the details. So what is the God-given role of older women in protecting households and the church and God's word? It's, it's encouraging and training the young women to fulfill their charge to honor God's word. And in order to do that, we must be reverent. We must be reverent in our behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, and teach what is good. That's who we are to be. That's who we are to be. And older women have a responsibility to teach the younger women. We are to be making a gospel impact on them. And that won't happen if we're not concerned with our own personal holiness first. That's discipline one, right? So what are older women to teach the young women? To be purposeful. To make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. Look at verses 4 and 5. We're just going to run through these really quick and then we're going to unpack it more. But look at verses 4 and 5. The first two, be husband lovers and children lovers. That addresses the gospel's influence a married woman has in her closest relationships. And then the next, be sensible, addresses gospel stewardship of her resources, her abilities her time, and her money, as she exercises sound judgment in the use of them. And impurity addresses gospel stewardship of her body, her thought life, her speech, her conduct. And being a keeper um, at home reflects her responsibility to steward and guard every aspect of her household well. Being kind draws attention to the influence a woman has, not only with what she does, but how she does it in her attitude. And finally, being subject to her own husband points to the opportunity in marriage to display the submission of the church to her heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And Sarah taught on that last week. So there's the big picture, a perspective that comes from the context. And we need to come to these verses seeing that these instructions are essential to the church's ability to combat false teaching, to set families household in order to adorn the gospel, to protect God's word from being dishonored. There is so much at stake. So how are we going to do this? We must understand that what produces this godliness and obedience is God's grace. Verse 11 says Jesus died. says he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession to make us zealous for good deeds. That's why we read Titus 2, 11 through 14 before we ever started talking about the details of verses 3 through 5. And Paul, after all of his instruction to Titus and what to teach men and what to teach women and slaves, says in verse 15, these things in, uh, uh, did he say that? Yeah, in verse 15, he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. 
Let no one disregard you. It's a big deal. It's spoken with authority. So that's the kind of bigger picture. Now let's dig deeper. We're going to dig deeper into these verses, um, 3 through 5, with that perspective and that motivation. So we can summarize the passage this way. The gospel is honored through transformed older women training transformed younger women. The gospel is honored through transformed older women training transformed younger women. If we're women whose lives are transformed by the gospel and our hearts are aligned to honor uh, honor the gospel, then this is what the gospel produces in us. And Titus 2 tells us we need to embrace and live out this truth in godliness and we're to be involved in one another's lives. Women's relationships with women, they have an important role to play in our homes, in our families, and in the church. So we need to know and embrace and align our lives with all of these gospel implications. So what older, what are older women transformed by the gospel? Um, what are they to be? What is meant by older woman? The text doesn't really indicate a specific age range. Commentators speculate that it's primarily referring to a woman whose children are grown. Um, But all of us are older than somebody, right? So these qualities are for all of us to cultivate. Older women are a rich spiritual resource in the church. And as we get older, each season brings new perspectives brings wisdom that needs to be shared with the younger women, even practically speaking. As we grow in displaying the gospel's work, we then pass that on to the younger women and girls, both in our own homes, mothers and daughters, and in the church. You see the disciplines in that? So, what must transformed older women be? Well, first... First one on your outline there is reverent in behavior. Reverent. That word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It means being set apart, holy. Priests were set apart, so they were to draw near to the presence of God in the temple. And Paul doesn't mean that that she's a priestess, but that everything is done with a view towards worshiping God. That's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, to see her life as sacred, to see her life as set apart. And how do we grow in reverence? I mean, reverence just doesn't happen with gray hair, right? It doesn't happen when we get, when we age. We have to be committed. We have to be committed to being in the word and being in the presence of God. That's discipline one. A reverent woman understands and lives as a woman who seeks to live a set-apart life. And a reverent woman is a doer of the word, not just a hearer. She's obedient to the word. She's seeking to be obedient to the word. She's growing in obedience. And as the truth of the gospel penetrates our shepherded hearts, we will grow in a reverent love for God. And holiness will increase It'll just seep into every aspect of who we are. There will be an aroma of Christ. Reverent behavior isn't very popular. It's not a very popular characteristic to aspire to today, right? Sounds kind of old-fashioned to be reverent. 
But the gospel intends to produce in us reverent behavior. Is that the desire of our hearts? To be a reverent woman? I've just been really been thinking about that all this week. Like, is that my desire? Do I think I want to be a reverent woman? Set apart woman. Concerned for holiness of life in our homes and in our church. This first characteristic qualification, qualification, this being reverent in behavior, um, it, it looks like it might be functioning like an overarching quality, like when Paul uses above reproach for elder qualifications, and then he, and then he lists what those qualifications are. Um, Paul says we must be reverent in our behavior, and then he goes on and he lists what that looks like. And number two on your outline is not malicious gossip. Not malicious gossips. We are not to be malicious gossips or slanderers. The Greek is diablos, meaning devil. The one who is an accuser. Slanderer. He's the one who slanders us in the presence of God and slanders God to us. I don't know about you, but when I hear it that way, it's just awful. This, this word is used 34 times in the New Testament. It's the title of Satan. Jesus describes him as the father of lies in John 8:44. So it certainly strips away any false notion about gossip not being that big of a deal. It's a big deal. We are not to engage in slander. We're not to repeat vicious gossip to others or to be backbiting women. We're to be women who control our tongues. And you know, gossip isn't something that can be effectively eliminated by kind of like you got this weed and you're just going to pick off some of the weeds here and there. That's not how we eliminate gossip. Okay, we gotta, in order to get rid of the weed, what do we have to do? we got to get down there to the root and we've got to pull it out. And the same is true of gossip. What's at the root of our words? Matthew 12:34 says, For out of... For the mouth, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills what? The heart. Fills the heart. So, what accusations might we entertain in our hearts that then overflow into our words? A few things to think about. You know, it might be judging others' motives without even asking them, you know, or assuming the worst. Or it could be keeping a record of wrongs, mulling over someone else's shortcomings. And when we do that, we're accusing others. I've been very convicted of that this week. We are, are we concerned with how we're using our words in our households or about those in our households to others? Are we concerned about how we're using our words in our Facebook posts, or yeah, Facebook postings, and however else you use all that media? So we must get to why we say what we say. The root, rooting out slander, gossip, accusations, requires self-control in what we think, and what we say, and and what we're willing to hear. So, seek the Holy Spirit's help. 
see his fruit in our lives includes self-control so that we can turn away from malicious gossip. And a reverent woman is one who is far from being charged with or has a reputation of being a gossip. She's trustworthy. And number three, not enslaved to much wine. So again, in verse three, we see, um, let's look at it. Let's look at verse three and we see, this connection, we see um, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Do you see the link there? there there's, there's kind of a connection. Not malicious gossips, nor slave to much wine. So consider this. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that all of you would know this. I certainly know this. What happens when one has too much to drink? Self-control? It's like really out the window, isn't it? It's negotiated away. And one area is our tongue. We just talked about our tongue. And the effects of alcohol can cause one to have no constraint over a tongue. So nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine. He doesn't forbid it, but in multiple places he does condemn drunkenness. We know drunkenness is a sin. Now, The word enslaved here, nor enslaved to much wine, it's a term of bondage. Now why, and this is just so interesting, why would he warn women about this in in particular? I mean, Paul has only four instructions for older women, he says. um, And out of the four, this is one of them. Isn't that kind of interesting? I throw that one in there. Perhaps it's because um, a woman may turn to alcohol to deal with life's struggles, being tired, stressed, and hurt, and angry. And what does she want? Relief. She wants relief. And the numbing effects of alcohol is only temporary. And if that's where she turns over and over again, she may become enslaved. Of course, wine isn't the only thing that can enslave, right? Titus 3, chapter 3, verse 3, describes us before we were Christ's followers. It says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And in Christ we've been set free. We're now his slaves. So if we're going to rely on, or so if we are relying on or enslaved to anything for comfort other than Christ, we must turn from those things. Fight the flesh. Put to death the deeds of the flesh by walking in the Spirit. And as I, as I said, we know drunkenness is a sin. But I just have been thinking about this. And, and just a word of, of I hope it's wisdom. Um, be careful. Just be careful with the use of alcohol. You know, if it's flowing freely, frequently, it's certainly worth evaluating. It's worth evaluating. And if you're not sure... You know, ask someone who will help you to evaluate your heart and your heart's motives. A reverent woman is a woman who shepherds her heart to find her fulfillment, her joy, and her comfort, and her peace, and her Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the implication of what the gospel does in a woman's life. And that woman, you know, she's equipped to then give hope 
to young women to testify that Jesus really is everything we need and that we can train our souls to find satisfaction in him and him alone and knowing him and trusting him and being near him. Number four, teaching what is good. Father Paul says that the older women are to teach what is good, literally teaching what is noble, teaching what is excellent, holy, and godly. And where does that come from? Anyone? The Word. It comes from the Word. The Word gives us God's wisdom. It's not simply giving our opinions or our experiences, although there are times when that can be really helpful. But we need to be women who point others to the Word of God and then encourage them to be obedient to it. And this isn't necessarily even a formal kind of teaching. It includes the example we set. Are you aware of the example you're setting? Is there a sense of reverence, of giving God glory in every part of your life? You know, do you use the gospel to evaluate your thinking and protect your conversations? Do you seek to rest? Do you seek your rest and your comfort in Jesus himself? This kind of woman can be trusted to teach what is good to the younger women. And that brings us to verse 4, where we learn what transformed older women must train the younger women to be. Verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage, may train the young women. All that we saw in verse 3 describes what the gospel does in the life of an older woman so that she can be a trainer of the younger women. That requires us, younger women, to be teachable, to be humble, to ask godly older women for help in becoming the kind of woman we find described here. And ladies, none of us, none of us are perfect older women. None of us. We're all in this process of sanctification. Just like none of us are perfect younger women, so I just want to make that very clear as I teach this. I've been very convicted. When I was younger, um, I looked at Titus 2 as a call to go and find that one woman, that one Titus 2 woman. I'm going to go find her, and she's going to be that one woman for me, right? But um, Christ placed us in a body. He placed us in a body, and, and we have one another. And no one woman may be able to teach me everything I need to know. But sometimes, through the most unexpected women, the Lord has taught me lessons I never would have even gone looking for. Many times it was just a few conversations, and many times it was their example. I was watching. And this is just a call to have rich relationships with many women in the body of Christ. And that will take on a lot of different forms. I love being um, an older Titus II kind of woman to the younger women. But I am also so thankful for these women, for um, that they have you all and other godly women in their lives who will um, help them see what it looks like to live a godly life for Jesus. I'm thankful for those women who have taught and continue to teach me as well. I just think God's heart to protect and honor God's word, it's tied up with us being involved 
in one another's life, to spur one another on in godliness. Just think about that. Let's read verses 4 and 5. It says, So that they, the older women, may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now don't forget that just a few verses down in verses 11 through 14, Paul gives out the truth that leads to this godly living. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that motivates us and enables us to live this way. And we're to teach the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. Each of these is designed by God for us to display the gospel's impact in our lives. And the first one on your list, husband lovers. This is to encourage the young women. We are to encourage the young women, to encourage one another, to love their husbands. In, in a married woman's life, this is a priority. And it can be taught. This love isn't based on emotion. It means choosing to pursue devotion to your husband. To cherish him. To be friends with him. It's a love that's a tender affection. It's a love that overflows from first loving Christ. It's lavishing God's grace. You know that grace that's been lavished on you? Onto him. It, requir- it requires guarding ourselves against a critical spirit, which can easily creep into our attitudes regarding our husbands. Right? Anyone? We are to love our husbands, not based on their worthiness, but because it's what honors God. And it stands in great contrast with the way the world loves. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about singleness, that it was a gift. It may have been kind of surprising for some, not, not something we're used to looking at um, you know, as a gift or as something good always. But it was designed for us by one who loves us. It's evidence of God's grace to us. And remember, we talked uh, about uh, that marriage is a gift too. And though there are many things that make marriage unique, there is one thing, biblically, that sets marriage apart from all other relationships. And it's a gift. Not just to your husband's, but to you, too. And if you're single, it's a gift that's only for marriage. It's how you love your future husband, if that's God's will someday, by saving it as a gift that you will only experience at that time with him. It's only to be experienced with a husband. And if you're married, it's to be savored as a gift. Do you see it as a gift? Or do you see it as a duty? Or a burden? Or a responsibility? It's a gift from God that a wife and a husband get to enjoy together. And this can be a real opportunity to shepherd our hearts to right 
thinking. Maybe do a change of thinking. I certainly have had to do that. There are so many things that compete, right? We are tired. New moms, say amen. Thank you. (laughs) There's so much to do in a day. And we're exhausted. And we're distracted, right? But this is part of learning to be sensible. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's another Titus 2 quality. But we can learn. We can choose to protect that gift. And each wife must learn to love her own husband. And that means to get to know him and study him and ask him how you can bless him as his helpmate. The gospel transforms us and enables us to be women who can and will love our husbands. The power of the gospel's work in us, it doesn't rely or depend or bank on our feelings, but rather on the reality that this kind of love can be grown and cultivated because of the gospel's power and implications in us. That's the power of the gospel in a transformed life. I mean, that can happen in arranged marriages like in Paul's day. Wow. Older women, that's the kind of gospel-centered, gospel-enabling, willful love we are to be teaching and training younger women. Number two, children lovers. That brings us to encourage young women to love their children. And again, this is a love that's taught. It's selfless. It's affectionate. And again, it's training our children in light of God's grace. And that means that first and most, we are shepherding our own hearts first so that we can be intentional about permeating their lives with God's word and his gospel. It means showing them how much we love him. And it's teaching them how to live. And it's rescuing them from their sinful behavior with gospel-centered discipline. Okay, there are two unbiblical extremes that we must be careful to avoid. It's not loving to overindulge our children or grandchildren. To ignore their sin or to try to buy their affection or their compliance with treats and promises. And it's also not loving to respond to our children's sin with our own sin. And now as I say that, I will be the first one to plead guilty. Because I'm guilty of unbiblical parenting, of responding simply to their sin with my own impatience and my own anger. And you know, if you're saying that with me, You must say even louder, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christ Jesus is he who has died in our place for my sinful anger and set me free from sin. Not if, but when we sin against our children. Even if it's in response to their sin, we must confess it. Ask their forgiveness, and share with them the hope of the gospel. And this kind of love, it's costly. It's costly. It'll cost us a lot of time. It's not convenient, and it takes practice. But in the process, we'll learn to look to our Heavenly Father to all things, right? To cry out to Him for help, to search His Word for wisdom, 
And as we continue to learn and grow in shepherding our own hearts, our love for Christ and his gospel will grow. And we'll have the awesome joy of teaching our children the greatness of our God and his salvation. So encouraging to see so many of you ladies doing this. Number three, sensible. Being sensible means letting the gospel impact our minds. It's being self-controlled, having a sound mind, being thoughtful, rather than basing our decisions on emotion or impulse, which takes heart shepherding, doesn't it? As we practice being of sound mind, being sensible, we learn to take our thoughts captive and replace them with truth. This includes being sensible with our commitment. In order to, this is what I was talking about, in order to keep our household relationships, our husbands and our children, a priority, in order to have the time to be faithful. We can be tempted to resent those relationships and those responsibilities when we aren't being purposeful and sensible. Being sensible means letting God's grace impact our priorities to his priorities as we are purposeful in how we invest our time. How are we using our time? And how we spend money. Are we being sensible? In our abilities. Number four brings us to pure, meaning holiness of life. That means to be set apart, living a life of repentance, walking with Christ one day at a, at a time. The gospel produces holiness in every season of a woman's life. Holiness has a purifying influence on our thoughts and our words and our actions. Focus is not on just a bunch of external do's and don'ts, but the focus is on our heart's attitude and affections. It reflects an inner longing to honor God in all that we do. And so I just want to ask, you know, are you aware of any impurities that you might be tempted by? You know, maybe romance and entertainment that, that could be tempted to carry us away to places we shouldn't go in our minds or to a place of discontent? Or are you tempted to use impure speech? Maybe a different vocabulary depending on who you're with. Are you tempted to dress in a way that would cause a man to stumble in lust? Nourishing your heart generously with the gospel is the best way to cultivate affections for what is pure and even expose areas where repentance is needed. That's God's grace, too. Okay, so we've worked our way over halfway through the list of seven things, and if we're not careful, we'll get lost in the list. So let's remember again what the point is. The gospel has come, and it's the gospel that produces godliness, and every member of the body of Christ has unique areas of opportunity to display the transforming power of the gospel. And when we do this, God's word is honored. It brings us to workers at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands that the value of the work and um, who understands the value of the work and the relationships in her home. This is still about our hearts. Still about our hearts. Now, why is the household so important? Well, if you survey the New Testament, you'll find that households are, are noted 
for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and refreshing the saints in prison. The home's important to God's work and his purposes. And as women, we have an incredible responsibility there. We're to ensure that our home is, is not a hindrance to the work or reputation of the gospel, but rather that it brings honor to the word and is useful to the church. That's what happens when we're faithful in our homes, to nurture and to serve those who live there and to fill our homes with the aroma of Christ. So what does the work of a household include? Well, for a married woman with children at home, the home's where she loves and nurtures nurtures her family. And it takes time. And it means choosing to find contentment in helping our husbands and shepherding our children. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires, learning diligence and managing the many, many tasks there. And there are seasons when the work of the home leaves little room for anything else, right? Even good things. But if we're diligent to shepherd our hearts well during these seasons, those years can be fertile soil of preparation for future ministry where there's more time for things outside of the home. But there's a time that your ministry is right there. Sometimes for a season, under well-thought-out circumstances, a couple may find it best for the family to have the wife working outside of the home. But that decision should only be made after carefully remembering that the characteristic is not negotiable. Just because, or just like being kind, being pure is not negotiable, right? It's not negotiable. There needs to be a clear way for the wife to do both. Work outside of the home and be a home worker. And by the way, just because we're at home all the time doesn't mean that we're a worker at home. We can be, I can be lazy, irresponsible, not a good steward of the family's time or of our own time. Laziness and excessive commitments outside the home or misplaced priorities will all undermine this ministry. The point is to be a worker at home, and our priorities and commitments must be evaluated first on a heart level. These are issues of the heart. It's helpful to ask, you know, what are our affections? What are our motivations? It may be helpful or even necessary to ask your husband, if you're married, to help and lead you in evaluating these priorities in your home. Being a worker at home is such a privilege. And if you struggle with seeing the value and joy in that, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for your home. I wish I had that when I was younger. But I would encourage you to sit down with your husband if you're married, even if you don't have children, and listen to um, a BUILD message um, from December 3rd, 2011. It's BUILD, December 3rd, 2011, on these verses as Scott shepherds the men. It could be very helpful so that you and your husband have unity in understanding how important this is. So that brings us to kindness. You may have heard this question before, but if you have a cup of coffee and it tips over, what comes out? Coffee, (laughs) right? In much the same way when we get tipped, 
When our lives get bumped by difficult people or circumstances, what comes out reveals what's in our hearts. And it's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home. And often our hearts and attitudes, they're just most clearly revealed right there in our own homes with those relationships. Kindness, I think you know what it means. It's to be gentle and considerate and sympathetic, even to those who are undeserving and unkind. In Ephesians 4.23, Paul admonishes believers to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So again, soaking your heart with the gospel will transform our attitudes and our responses. And God's grace will enable us to be kind. And that leads us to number seven, subject to their own husbands. It's the same verb for submit we saw in Ephesians 5 last time. And the idea here is that there must be someone who is the leader and another who is not the leader. That one's the follower. In this case, it's the wife. She lines her life up under her husband. And we talked about this last lesson, that it's the big picture of how a wife's submission displays the relationship of the church to Christ and what a privilege that is. And we've said all of this before, but it can still be hard to know exactly how this fleshes out. So on your notes, you'll see a whole list of principles for help and actually um, being a submissive wife. So take some time maybe this week or even talk about one or two of those things in your discussion time. But older women need to help and train the younger women to understand that God has established a created order. And we can't assume that all young women understand this principle. It's so contrary to the world's message. Older women need to understand first, and then they need to help the younger women to understand that biblical submission makes for a healthy family and it makes for a healthy church. So what happens when transformed women are all they should be? In conclusion, why do we as women need to be careful how we live? Because the world needs to see. The world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. It needs to see that the gospel is the truth that leads to godliness. That it frees us from every lawless deed. It purifies us and makes us, the church, a people for Jesus' own possession. Sell us for good deeds. The world needs to see that we, his church, belong to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We used to be just like the world around us, but we've been saved. And how will the world know that? By living obediently. So Titus 2, 3-5. On your outline you'll see how All of the descriptions of who we used to be are contrasted with the godly character described in Titus 2, chapter 3 through 5. We were foolish, but the gospel enables us to be sensible. We were disobedient, but the gospel is displayed through submission to our own husbands. And in chapter 3, verse 1, the gospel instructs everyone in the church to be obedient to authority. We were deceived, but the gospel informs us so that we can teach what is good and learn to be sensible. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, but the gospel has freed us 
and made us slaves to Christ so we can be reverent and pure, free from enslavement. We were spending our lives in malice and envy, but the gospel cleanses our hearts and our words for malicious gossip. It takes our focus off of what others have and do and replaces it with the joy of working in our own homes. We were hateful, but the gospel produces the Spirit's fruit of kindness in us when we were hating one another. But in the gospel, we love one another, beginning in our homes. We're not what we once were. And that is a powerful witness to the world that God's word is worth honoring. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this time. And I pray that as we go and care for the kids and uh, care for one another in our discussion groups, that we would all leave here um, just with a greater love for you and understanding of your um, instruction to us as women. We praise you and thank you in your son's name. Amen.